Remain standing for the gospel lesson, which is taken from John's gospel, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. John's gospel, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can a man be born again when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Unless a man is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. The word of the Lord. Before I uh, get started, let me remind you that... Uh, we have an evening service in the evening, this evening, and also Sunday school classes for all ages. Uh, adult class downstairs for women. There's a mixed class upstairs. And uh, I'll be finishing up on the doctrine of the will. I uh, especially enjoy this lesson because it gives so much insight into uh, our constitution, the way we work the way we think, why we are motivated to do the things that we do. Uh, today, though, uh, in the sermon, I want to turn our attention to the Holy Trinity. If you have been following with me the church calendar, and I do follow it from about the first week of Lent up to today, I want to remind you what we have covered. We have covered the great themes of Christianity, those doctrines which made Christianity, Christianity. That which is essential to the Christian faith. We have looked at Jesus' ministry during Lent, his baptism, his temptations, some of his teaching, 
And then on uh, Monday, Thursday, we looked at his gathering with his disciples and the washing of feet. On Good Friday, there was a sermon on the cross of Jesus Christ. And on Easter, the great celebration of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then just a few weeks ago, that is two weeks ago actually, we looked at the ascension. A subject that is not much preached, but very important to the Christian church. In fact, it says in the first chapter of Acts that an apostle is one of those who have witnessed the life of Jesus from his baptism to his ascension. That's kind of a parenthesis to his life. And then, of course, last week we celebrated Pentecost, and today we cap it all off with a look at the Trinity. Now, when people go wrong with respect to Christianity, it's almost always with respect to the Trinity. And so I, I don't apologize for preaching somewhat of a doctrinal sermon today, and I believe if you get the doctrine right, sometimes the practical application will be obvious, and you can understand uh, what the will of the Lord is. But the doctrine of the Trinity. At its heart, Christianity makes a profession of faith that the apostle says, to the Greeks it was foolishness, to the Jews a stumbling block. And the church of the Lord Jesus Christ or those early Christians were forced to rethink who God was because Jesus came in their midst. They were confident of this. There was one God and only one God. God can have no rival. By definition, there can only be one God who is supreme. There can be only one supremacy. And so they were clear that they had to work within that framework. As I reflected upon the revelation of God in Jesus Christ, God reveals himself in the person of Jesus Christ, and they had to rethink, if you will, some very important things about God. First of all, they were confronted with the data in the New Testament, in the Revelation, that Jesus is revealed as being from heaven, who could forgive sins and receive worship, and do things that only God could do. And yet he was a man. Furthermore, on the day of Pentecost, they were confronted again with the reality that here was one in their midst who gave them power and energized them. How does he relate to God? And so early Christians, even in the New Testament, you see that they came to an understanding that there was one God who subsists in three persons, or in Greek, it's hypostasis. Not quite translatable as person, but something like a person. And so the one God subsists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, they knew there could be only one God. But on the other hand, God is three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In the text today, you see that unfolding even in John chapter 3. Now remember, they are still being confronted with the revelation. They are dazed by it. 
It may not have been until Pentecost that they begin to fully understand that God was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it was the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ and our Lord confronting sinful man that people get, if you will, a true glimpse of who God is and what he is like. Oh, they knew him in the Old Testament, and they even knew him as Father. But in the New Testament, God comes to dwell with human beings. So my text for today is John chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Normally when this text is preached, the focus is upon the new birth. And I'll mention that in a moment, but it's not the focus. The focus is the Trinity. I want you to notice Nicodemus's language in chapter 3, verse 2. Nicodemus is already puzzled. He knows that there's something extraordinary about Jesus. He really, really knows that, that Jesus is something special. He says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. He may not be quite at the point yet where God is among the people of Israel. But he knew at least that God was with Jesus in a special way. Now, these passages of Scripture for the believer, for the Orthodox Christian, it's quite clear that the Trinity is taught. But for some sects and, and some uh, uh, groups that have varied or strayed away, or those who look from the outside at Christianity are in, absolutely puzzled by the doctrine of the Trinity. For instance, there's one common group that says that the doctrine of the Trinity was made up in the 3rd and 4th century of the Christian era, almost 250 years after Jesus went back to heaven. Christians got together and made it up at a council. And Tertullian was the first one to use the word Trinity. And people like Athanasius and others made this up in the fourth century, just out of whole cloth. Now, that is not true, of course. As you look back and read the scripture, you can see the adumbration or foreshadowing of the Trinity in the Old Testament. And when you get to the New Testament, you see it clearly. Paul is giving benedictions in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why would he do that? Because he now understands it's been revealed that God is Father, God is Son, and God is the Holy Spirit. Let me say again, when people go wrong about Christianity, they go wrong at this point. We confess the Trinity, but we do not confess to understand it. We only confess to stand under God's revelation and to receive it and proclaim it to the world. Now, I want you to follow me briefly through this chapter, and it has to be brief. This is Communion Sunday, and um, I don't want to hold you over uh, any more than I usually do. Notice in verse 16 that God has revealed us the Father. It doesn't use the word Father in the text. But look at the passage. This is undoubtedly the most famous verse in all of the Bible. Almost every person can quote it. 
Gandhi carried around in his pocket portions of the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount. He had a great reverence for Jesus, even though he did not believe that he was the one eternal God in human flesh. But nonetheless, he was quite intrigued. This verse is known worldwide, probably. Maybe it's the most famous little passage of Scripture in all of literature. We teach our children to memorize it, but look at it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now, if there is a son, there has to be a father. If there is a son, there has to be a father. What you find in the New Testament is that our Lord himself taught his disciples to pray our father. Let me see if I can contrast this with some other religions, just briefly. In Islam, there's no mention of God as Father. It's not only not a concept, it's somewhat odious. There's no concept of fatherhood in this sense of a supreme being in the other religions of the world. Let's take Judaism. You do have something of the idea of God as Father in Judaism because of the Old Testament. You find the word in Isaiah. But you do not see God as Father fully set forth in all of his love for human beings until the Son is revealed. No religion on earth uses the term Father in the way that Christians do. Instinctively, we, we, instinctively we, we, we cry out in the time of trouble, Oh, Father in heaven. How often have you done that? In a deep period of crisis or puzzlement, you, you just automatically cry out to God, Father in heaven. And then we are taught to look at God as Father who loves us. Underneath, says the scriptures, are the everlasting arms of a loving God. And who can forget that most important parable of the prodigal son? Here, an oriental father usually would be very stern and severe with his children if they crossed his path he would come down on them with great judgment. And yet here he is on the hillside, weeping, no doubt, day after day, looking for his son who had gone away and he knew to his own destruction. And then when he sees him from afar off, he, he runs to him and throws, throws a feast. God is Father. And God is love. And this is the love that undergirds us all. And this is the love that sent Jesus Christ. But notice who was sent. The tender shepherd. 
Jesus comes into the world, the scripture says, to seek and to save the lost. Remember that he is a demonstration of the heart of the Father. Paul puts it this way, that God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He becomes the atoning sacrifice for our sin on the cross. He pays the price to restore us back to the father like the prodigal. But in and through all of this, we are being confronted by the heart of God in Jesus Christ. What is God like? Go out and talk to your friends. You can talk about God, but then get to the next question. What is God like? What is God like? Is he just an old gray-haired man sitting in the heavens with a long beard, stroking it and puts up with everything and there's no judgment? That's a lot of people's opinion if they believe in God. Or some people who've received some kind of traumatic experience, religious experience of some sort, sees God as a stern judge in heaven ready to come down with the axe upon their neck. And for others, they see the universe as just somewhat blind with no leader. No head, no supreme being. Whatever evil in the world and whatever good in the world are just human judgments. No such thing as good and evil. For there is no God to determine good and evil. It's just nature, whatever is. That is why you see some who do polling and they find out what people are human, what they're doing in their behaviors and they say this is the new norm. It's all right. It's just what human beings do. But in Jesus Christ, we are confronted with the love of God. And the love of God is something different and special. That one who gave life in the beginning now seeks to redeem it in his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus becomes the seeking, searching love of God for the sinner. And that's what you find in John chapter 3. Later on in this, he's pictured as the good shepherd who goes forth after the one lost sheep. What Christians know, they may not be able to explain the Trinity, but what they do know, that they have been confronted with the love of God in Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ indeed is supreme deity and he loves me. Now, what a worldview that forms. You can form a worldview that looks at the world as being hostile to you. And there's a lot of evil in this world. And it's very easy to conclude that the world is indifferent or hostile to you. But if you are a Christian, you know that you have been confronted by the love of God in Jesus Christ. I was talking to someone just past week, very special to me. And... Um, the person was despairing over the world conditions. Look how bad they are. This happened to be a young woman. Can you bring children in a world like this? And my answer is yes. Absolutely. We're not ruled by the powers. We have a Father in heaven that has manifested himself in our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not worried about the economic situation from the future, ultimately, and finally, if you want to know the truth. We'll make do. 
won't we? What if the whole world collapses? What if we are hitting something worse than the 1930s? What if everything goes to pot, to seed? You have an anchor and a foundation in Jesus Christ. He's manifest his love for you. And the Christian knows because of the Trinity, this divine counsel of love, that yes, indeed, this Father's heart has been revealed to me, and God is not against me, but in Jesus Christ, he is for me. In this passage, the Holy Spirit is brought up. The Holy Spirit is characterized in some places in the New Testament as the love of God being poured out in our heart and lives. Wherever there is love, there has to be life. There has to be something living to love. They go together. Love and life go together. And when Christians confess the Trinity, we are confessing that there is indeed a deep life in God. And he shares it with us. God does not receive his life from someone else. It is within him. Scholars call it a seity. In his being, he is self-sustaining love and life who has, con- who has communicated to us in Jesus Christ and continues to do through his spirit. There's a wonderful section here. I'll close with this, but look at verses 3 through 5. Nicodemus comes with some nice words. He does know that Jesus is special, but Jesus actually confronts him in a rather rude rude way in one sense. He comes and says, I know you're a teacher from God, and Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. He doesn't really address the flattery. If it's flattery, I don't think it is. But he goes right to the heart of Nicodemus' problem. He's yet to really understand this love and this life. And Nicodemus, who is puzzled now, how can a man be born again when he is old? Notice what Jesus says. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, the word again here means from above. The word is anothon. It's a preposition. It means from above. And I think that's self-explanatory when he says, answers him, I tell you the truth, unless a man is born of the water, that is a natural birth, an ordinary creation, you're, you're, you're born once, but you also have to be born from above. Of the Spirit. And what what is happening here is that Jesus is demonstrating what the love of God is all about. It's the seeking, searching love of God. And the Holy Spirit must pour that love out in your heart and make you a new creature. John says later, we love him because he first loved us. There is always hope for there is a new birth. And it is through the Trinity. The question comes, can we demonstrate in any way the Trinity? 
Do we have some kind of way to tell the world that we're just not making this thing up? Do we have some way to say that we're just not uh, absolutely foolish and ignorant in our understanding of God? Well, let me say a couple of things about the Trinity. The Trinity itself is, in fact, a mystery. It's not something that we say is confusing, and we don't believe that we are confused, but we do believe that God has revealed himself in such a way that he is a mystery. Now, God revealed himself to be understood, but we can never absolutely comprehend who God is. We can only know something about God, only what he has revealed to us. That's why you follow Jesus, so that you might know more and more about God. You've heard me say you can't really understand the love of God in nature. Because when the tornado comes through, it destroys that concept. Where do you know that God loves you? You know that God loves you in the person of Jesus Christ. That God the Father has sent him and the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon us and in our hearts. So the Trinity is, in one sense, all Christians say, no, I can't really explain it. It's a deep mystery, but maybe we'll know more in heaven. What then is God like? Well, God is not composed of matter, or God is not created like everything else. Now, notice what this means. If God is not made up of material things, and if God is not created... There is nothing that we can point to and say, God is like this in one sense, except in the person of Jesus Christ. I, I've, I've watched Sunday school teachers, and I've tried it myself. How do I demonstrate to the children the concept of the Trinity so they don't think we have three gods, and yet at the same time, they, they understand that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can, you can try a football. I'm looking forward to football season. Try a football. Well, it has three parts, and yet it's one thing. Air, the inner tubing, at least used to be, and the outer skin. That's made up of parts. You can try an egg. How many of you have used the illustration of an egg? It's not a bad illustration, but it falls apart if you really think about it. No pun intended. Why? Because it's made up of parts. Yes, it's one thing, but it's made up of parts. God is not made up of parts. God is uncreated. He's a pure spirit, one God. And yet he subsists in three persons. I think maybe the best illustration of the Trinity in nature is to think about space. Think of the three dimensions of space. It exists. It has height and width, width and depth, doesn't it? There's a threeness about it, and yet there's a oneness about it. You say, that's it, that's perfect. No, the problem with that illustration is it doesn't sufficiently distinguish the personhood of God. Yet, we believe in the Trinity. Christians believe in the Trinity because they have received Jesus Christ and it forces them to confess 
that God is more than I ever thought. God is a counsel of love and life. And he has redeemed me for himself. Today is Trinity Sunday. I don't know how really to explain the Trinity. Except I know that if you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You won't have much problem with the doctrine. You will know that you have a loving father. For you have met his son. You will know that you have a redeemer. For he gave himself for you. And you will know that God is with you in his spirit. No matter where you go, the Lord is with you. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ must never be removed from this foundation. It is sure and it is true. And that's why every once in a while I want to be sure to preach on the Trinity. So that you are not moved from the foundation that God has laid in Jesus Christ. Amen.